Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ideally, we should not let emotions determine how we look at our investments. But it's pretty hard to separate that. That's Dana Dillon. She's a retired teacher. She was also, for many years, a member of the board of the California State Teachers Retirement Fund, or CULSTERS, as it's called. And as a member of the board, it was her job to help decide which assets to hold in CULSTERS' investment portfolio. But the, the things that have come to the board have all been, in one way or another, emotional for me. Dana struggled with one particular investment. And as you can tell, even now, several years later, she still gets emotional about it. But then the drama that surrounded it sums up one of the biggest dilemmas for those trying to invest along sustainable or ethical lines. Namely, should you engage with a company and try and change it or just sell out? Some people say it's best to divest. Why are we holding these energy, oil and gas companies Uh, prison companies. These are bad businesses. They should just uh, not be held. The alternative approach is to hold these companies and engage with management, try to agitate for change from the inside. This is Behind the Money from the Financial Times. I'm Manuela Zaragoza. In this episode, why one of the world's largest public pension funds was thrown into crisis when it had to decide whether to walk away from one of its investments. It's the fourth episode in our series on the rise of environmental, social and governance issues, or ESG, in the corporate and investment worlds. With the help of FT Correspondents and the FT's Moral Money team, we'll track what difference that crisis made to the companies in question and what it tells us about the future of investing. More from Dana in just a moment. First, it's a fact not always universally acknowledged that many of us have no idea what our retirement savings are actually invested in, even when our savings go into an apparently ESG-friendly investment fund. It's up to the investor to really take a look under the hood. Patrick Temple-West, he's with the FT's Moral Money team. Microsoft, Apple, Alphabet, Amazon to some extent are usually held highly in these ESG funds. There might be oil and gas companies in there. We've actually done some stories about that. Funds that say they're fossil fuel free or some variation of that language and actually have small holdings of oil and gas companies in there. So that's what's typically held in ESG funds, the tech sector, because it is perceived as being cleaner. And and I imagine that some people would say it's not really proper ESG investing if you're just putting your money in tech companies. Well, it depends on the the definition of ESG, and this is sort of the eternal debate that we wrestle with day to day. What is proper ESG for people? For some people, it is just risk mitigation and screening in 
and screening out. For others, it is engagement. You want your fund to be agitating for change at various companies, pushing the board to make behavior changes. That's more expensive. That's more time consuming. You might be paying higher fees for that. But it's a question of what you want in your ESG fund. So what does ESG mean for Culsters, the California State Teachers Retirement Fund, where Dana used to work? Respect for human rights, respect for civil liberties, respect for cultural and ethnic identities. Dana there listing some of the ESG criteria for investments made by Culsters. Sex, race, disability, language, social status. The retirement fund calls these criteria risks. And they're risks because it believes they could impact the long-term profitability of companies and assets. Consumers might, say, shun a company's products if that firm is seen to be abusing workers' rights or human rights or ruining the environment. So there's a whole list of risk factors. A few years ago, Colster's commitment to those ESG risk factors was tested to the limit. It started in 2016 with the election of President Trump. Another major part of our agenda is immigration security. We're going to build a wall, folks. Not long after, Trump declared there was a border crisis with Mexico. A nation without borders is not a nation. Beginning today, the United States of America gets back its borders. Now, nearly a year since he was inaugurated, Immigration and Customs Enforcement says that arrests are up roughly 40%. I have put in place a zero-tolerance policy for illegal entry uh, on our southwest border. The scene at the border. Dramatic pictures of the chaos in Tijuana, Mexico over the past... Migrants were pouring in. Parents and their children were being separated and incarcerated. If you are smuggling a child, and that child may be separated from you as required by law. Every time I saw it on the news, it was just, it was really, really appalling. At a moment when many were re-examining their political and moral commitments, teachers who paid into Calsters took a look at their investment portfolio. And many were horrified to find they were in fact party to what they were seeing on the news. Calsters held shares in two private prison companies operating immigration detention centres, CoreCivic and GEO Group. And so you would see footage of... Uh, of the, of the actual separation of, of children from their families, which was heartrending, And then um, just of the children on their own in these detention centers. And the government didn't have good tracking of them. And so some of these kids were totally lost. And trying to reunite the families was going to be a nightmare. And... That proposition, I think, to somebody that works with kids was terrifying. But why was Colsters invested in these private prison firms in the first place? Most of the Colsters portfolio is passively managed. And the holdings that Colsters had in GeoGroup and CoreCivic were in our global equities portfolio. Just to be clear, there was never a conscious decision on the behalf of Colsters to say, we are going to invest in private prisons. No, they were held in the indexes that we benchmark against. In other words, Colster's investments went into a basket of stocks and bonds that mirrored those of an index like, say, the S&P 500. They were passive investments. 
So the question then became, what was Culster's going to do about its shares in CoreCivic and GEO Group? For many teachers, it was a no-brainer. Sell out. Letters and petitions started pouring into the board. I think they would range from, we believe that this is untenable position for Calsters to how dare Calsters be invested in something that would, is so onerous and, and um, has such egregious practices. The amount of correspondence showed me that if we continued to be part of having GeoGroup and CoreCivic in our portfolio, that a lot of our members would not be, not only not happy with Calsters, but not have a great deal of faith in the things that we were investing in on their behalf. Now, the thing is, when a big institutional investor like Calsters decides to remove a company's shares from its $300 billion investment portfolio, that sends a powerful message to the rest of the financial market. It says this or that company is toxic, it's undesirable. Plus, there's the question of what selling out could do to the profitability of Culster's investment portfolio. Which is why divestment is not a decision it takes lightly. There's a strict protocol. The first step was to engage, to try and see if Culster's concerns might force CoreCivic and GEO Group to change. Calster staff was sent off to go and talk with the companies and find out what was really going on. Were the news reports all true? They made visitations to the prisons. They observed what was happening. Most of it was detention centers because that was really the issue for us at that time because of the separation of children and families and the companies that we were looking at were heavily involved in the detention centers that were on the news. Calster's staff sent back a report. But if the board was hoping for a simple black and white answer on whether to sell out, it didn't get it. There were only many shades of grey, as is so often the case when it comes to social issues, the hard-to-measure S in ESG investing. The report left it up to board members to make a final judgment, pointing out that for a lot of these detainees... They were getting services that they might not have had access to before. A lot of these detainees are are refugees from countries that are extremely poor. And so some of these facilities were like the first time they ever had medical treatment, first time they'd seen a dentist, that type of thing. And, And so the pro part of it was something that shocked me. Suddenly, what should have been a straightforward decision to sell out wasn't. It was very clear that this was going to be a split decision. Even Dana was no longer 100% convinced divestment was the best option. After reading the materials that staff provided us, it, was, it, it wasn't clear to me. And, and I always try to go into the board meetings and investment committee meetings with a really open mind. Decision day arrived. Item 13. November the 7th, 2018, a Culster's board meeting. So uh, we have a very lengthy item. I just want to state for the record so you're aware, I personally um, understand and actually share the anger and the pain uh, that uh, has been caused by this current administration's uh, immigration policy. As fiduciaries to Calsters, though, you have to make a decision as best you can without any emotion. And I know on this issue, it's tough. So we probably had maybe... 100 people in the room. It was very crowded. A large number, probably 20 or 30 investment staff were in there. 
Then there are representatives from the constituency groups. And then we have the people that want to come and speak to us about the issues that are before us in the investment committee. So we had representatives of non-government organizations that were pro-divestment of the private prison industry. The argument started. The question of our divestment policy is whether these companies violated our six uh, particular risk factors that we looked at. But the challenge I have to give you is that morality is not in one of our risk factors, our ESG risk factors. One side of the 11-member board believed that there was not a strong enough case for divestment under Colster's policies. I'm having a hard time figuring out how this meets our fiduciary obligation and our policy and avoids this becoming what we've clearly stated in our policy is where we don't want to go, is to be making decisions based on our social, political, moral judgments. Others argued selling out would remove any possibility of influencing Core Civic and GEO Group in future. And then there were those who argued Colsters should divest on principle. This is a really personal issue for me because I live in the border, I live in San Diego, and I see it every day. I actually have been working with the asylum um, folks who are here this last couple of weeks. I don't think private prisons have a, a place in this. And so I think we have the power to, to make a difference. And so I would like to make a motion that we divest. Tears were shed. And loaded with a ton of emotion, I got emotional because the ultimate parties responsible for what happens in those detention centers and private prisons refuse to talk to us. So the federal government, Department of Justice, Health and Human Services, those entities would not engage with us. And so I think what made me emotional, what frustrated me, is that we didn't have an opportunity to change things. If we stayed in it, nothing would change. If we got out of it, nothing would change. Us divesting did not hurt the industry or the providers one iota. And that's a really frustrated place to be. That realization that Colsters was powerless to change things because GEO Group and CoreCivic were beholden to government policy on migration is ultimately what swung Dana's vote. CoreCivic and GEO Group, they don't necessarily perform at the whim of whoever's in the administration, but whoever's in the administration can have a, a large impact on how sustainable these businesses are. To be invested in an entity that would be profitable at the whim of an administration just didn't sound to me like it would be good business. And so I voted to divest. Uh, Ms. Dillon? Aye. Ms. Hendricks? No. Uh, Ms. Vargas? Aye. Ms. Sumon? Aye. And Ms. Wong Hernandez for the Director of Finance? No. It was a close call. I do. Uh, and Mr. Keeley? Aye. The board voted to divest by just one single vote. The motion passes. Thank you. Still, you know what they say about the butterfly effect, how small causes can have large effects. So the delightful thing about this is we can look up uh, every single one of Core Civic's outstanding bonds. Joe Rennison, he's a reporter on the FT's market desk in New York. He's checking there to see what's happened to one of those private prison companies, CoreCivic, 
and its ability to issue debt or bonds, basically to borrow from financial markets, since that vote at Culster's in 2018. We can look at just the pure cost of borrowing, so the coupon uh, that would have been on each of these bonds at issuance. And that tells us essentially what interest they would have to pay to investors. So they had a bond in uh, 2017 in which they paid a coupon of 4.75%. Then their issuance in April of this year, which is a five-year bond, which was in 2026, and on that bond they paid at 8.25%. So a fairly significant increase over that period of time. Over a sort of longer time horizon, we can see how it has sort of dramatically increased from where it was in 2017 of 4.75% to this year of 825 So yeah, it seems, seems like it's definitely increased. So core civics borrowing costs have gone up since Colster's vote to divest. The reputation risk of being invested in these companies is increasingly growing. And you can draw a thread there from, you know, Colster's divesting years ago. They seem to have been pretty early in what ended up being a sort of growing chorus of investors, campaign groups, all starting to push back against the private prison industry and you know, attacking it from different angles. JP Morgan, Barclays, Wells Fargo. Since 2018, big lenders have all felt the heat of a growing campaign to turn the tap off on money going into private prison groups. Some banks have pledged to cut off funding altogether, and the political climate has also changed. Today, I'm also issuing an executive order that will ultimately end the Justice Department's use of private prisons, an industry that houses pretrial detainees and federal prisoners. You have a government that is making proclamations to end the private prison industry in terms of its reliance, and that's going to affect core civic and geogroup's bottom line. That's going to affect their ability to make money, and that's going to affect their ability to pay back debt. And so even if you're entirely agnostic as to what CoreCivic, Geogroup, other companies do, in order for you to invest in those companies, you're going to want more interest in debt markets. You're going to want more yield for doing so. To reflect risk. Exactly. To reflect the risk. Exactly. We asked CoreCivic for its take. It said it was the first in its sector to publish an ESG report and added that it's proud of the story it has to tell. It pointed to its instructors who teach nearly 1,500 people new job and life skills every day, as well as its long-standing policy to never lobby on sentencing laws. Some investing decisions, it said in a statement to us, are more about caving to political pressure from a small vocal group of activists than engaging in a constructive dialogue about the facts. We started this episode asking whether, as an ESG investor, you're better off selling out or engaging with a company to try and change it. The last couple of years has seen the rise of activist shareholders, basically investors who buy into a company with the sole purpose of trying to change it. But does the story of Colsters and CoreCivic suggest that a threat to divest may well have to be part of any long-term ESG investing strategy? This year, we have seen some shifts. Attractor Mooney, she's the FT's investment correspondent, among other things, she's been following developments at Aviva, a big asset manager here in the UK. They've basically said that they're going to engage with big fossil fuel producers for the next few years. 
and they're going to really try and push them to set out climate plans, transition plans, and make concrete steps, which includes putting measures in place to take action by 2030. And if at the end of this multi-year engagement program, they say that these companies haven't met the targets that they've set for them, they are going to sell out. And so I think we're maybe getting to a stage where other investors will have to start considering doing something similar, that they can't just keep engaging for years with no end game in sight. Attractor says that more hardline stance is being driven partly by financial regulators tightening controls over asset managers and what they're allowed to include in their ESG-labeled investment portfolios. There have been too many cases of what's called greenwashing. Greenwashing has morphed into becoming a term to describe any sort of bad behaviour from asset managers where they're claiming they're very sustainable, that they're considering all of these climate issues and more broadly social and governance issues while actually doing very little about it in reality. All of which begs the question, can asset managers really just rely on investing passively, that is tracking and mirroring an index, when it comes to making an impact on, for example, climate change, diversity, social justice or corporate pay? They kind of have to be active if they want these companies to address some of these ESG issues. Lindsay Frost is a senior reporter at Agenda, an FT specialist publication for corporate board directors. She writes about ESG issues. So your BlackRocks that are going to be stuck in indexes for 30 years, however long, forever, essentially, if they want companies to survive the climate crisis, to survive, you know, clients' demands for more diversity and inclusion at companies, they're going to have to engage. And they have to do so in a way that sets clear expectations, clear targets. They want clear results or else their clients are going to leave them and go to another huge institutional investor that has those clear expectations for engagement on ESG. A goal is not enough when it comes to ESG anymore, whether it's diversity, whether it's climate change. The investors, they want to see detailed, timely disclosures on how the company plans to get there. It's been quite a few years since Dana was in that emotional boardroom meeting and voted for Colsters to divest of Core Civic and GEO Group shares. I had a last question for her, though. When you look back now, do you look back and think, I did the right thing? I, I absolutely do. I absolutely do. And I and I, I think that the fact that the news came out that Colsters had divested from Core Civic and GEO Group probably resonated around the world because of the institutional investor that we are. Next time, is the focus on ESG in the investment and corporate worlds a force for good or just a fad? Two leading FT voices on opposite sides of the ESG debate face off. Giving people the impression that their investment choices are going to meaningfully change This set of issues that markets have repeatedly failed to solve is a dangerous placebo because it makes people feel good for doing essentially very little. Well, how about the idea it's not an either-or? It's not a zero-sum game. 
I've included some links to reporting by Joe Renison, Patrick Temple-West, Lindsay Frost, and Attractor Mooney in the show notes. And you can read more about ESG investing from our FT reporters and the Moral Money team at ft.com slash moral money. And as a listener to FT Podcasts, why not sign up for a 30-day free subscription to the FT's premium Moral Money newsletter? It includes complimentary access to ft.com for the same period. Head to ft.com slash inside ESG to sign up. And if you're enjoying this ESG series, why not leave a review? We particularly like positive ones. It helps spread the word. Behind the Money is produced by Oluwakemi Aladisui with additional support from Alice Fordham and Josh Gabert-Doyon. Our sound engineer is Breen Turner. We have editorial direction from Rene Kaplan, and our head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. I'm Manuela Zaragoza. Catch up with me next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.